Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello. Hi, this is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and welcome. I am your host at this, our weekly radio show, Visual Workplace Radio, about letting the workplace speak. And in each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to build the intelligence of our operational system, your intelligence, into the living dynamic landscape of work through visual devices, through visual systems. And why do we do it? So we can reap the huge bottom line benefits of doing so and create a cultural transformation. And you know what? There's a third fabulous benefit, and that is we enjoy ourselves at work. We let the workplace speak. We have a relationship with the workplace. It helps us. It really works. My encounter with workplace visuality first occurred in 1984, and I told you about that in our first show, very, very first show about a half a year ago. The field at the time didn't exist. There wasn't any name for it. There wasn't any methodology. There wasn't any framework of thinking. There were no concepts, no principles, no definitions, just a kind of array of things, Kanban, labels and lines, signage, color coding was big, (laughs) and an occasional and-on. I was nonetheless fascinated. This is 1984, and I began to investigate. And in fact, I was working at the time at Productivity, Inc. as their lead um, consultant and trainer and kind of um, front person. And I had to leave the company after five or six years because my boss wasn't that fascinated and he wanted me to just kind of make money for him. And I wanted to investigate this unformulated field. I wanted to codify it and know it. I was more than curious. And so I left that company and went out on my own where I kind of had uh, control over my time and over my focus. I was intrigued and I began to investigate and to implement, to implement a lot in companies and to fail. And I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why what worked worked and why what failed failed and what to do about getting it to be more effective, more beneficial for companies, how to, how to develop this field, this field, these technologies of the visual workplace. Soon I became driven. I wanted to know everything. <laughs> I was in a sandbox and I was having the time of my life and it was hard. I mean, it was really hard. It was hard not just because it was an unformulated field, but because it was, I'm not a marketing company. I didn't market my wares, but I did need to have companies that would be willing laboratories for this investigation. And there were, there were enough of them and they got tremendous benefit and I got the benefit of a live laboratory. I wanted to know what was underneath, what this visual workplace thing really was, why it worked, how it worked, what it meant, how to do it more effectively, and how to complete it. What did complete mean? And how the visual workplace fit in the scheme of things. This work continues to this day in preparation for this show. You know what I turned over a few more rocks and got my thinking clear. And it's wonderful. It's just glorious for this investigation to continue. You know, coming out of it, you could call it a journey. It certainly is a journey. It has a destination, but I haven't reached it yet, so I journey on. But out of that, out of that came thinking frameworks and concepts and principles and practices training methodologies. You can find them on our website, visualworkplace.com. On-site methodologies, online methodologies, articles, podcasts of this show, a lot of stuff on our on our website, visualworkplace.com. Over 100 articles. Help yourself. Learn. There's enough there for you to learn and apply 
We don't have to ever meet, although I would love to meet you. And you don't ever have to cross my palm with silver. There's enough on the website for you to get started. And there'll be more and more as I find uh, openings in my schedule. I actively implement. I actively work with clients. I am not a scholar. I am not an ivory tower person. I go out there. I do it. And as I do it and the methods of evolve, they bump up against failures and then I kind of work them. I change the methodologies, write my books, which you can find on our website as well. It's really, really wonderful to have a living laboratory called the workplace, to have willing clients who want to investigate themselves and embrace this methodology. Anyway, our, work, our website is visualworkplace.com. Please visit us. And if you want to reach us or me, radio at visualworkplace.com will get you there. Radio at visualworkplace.com. We're here to help. We're here to help and we're here to do that important thing that once you get started, we want to make sure you keep going. We want to make sure that you do get the financial rewards, 15 to 30% increase in productivity. We see it all the time. A fixed and firm schedule, supervisors who are engaged and spirited in their own contribution, embedded problem-solving, problem-solving as a competency in your organization, visual problem-solving, and visual solution-making. Because once you, once you solve the problem, darn it, Embed it. Make it a part of the living landscape of work through visual solutions. That's the way that circle completes itself. And the cultural results, the financial results are amazing. The cultural results are simply transformational. Uh, I could just tell you, you would think I was a raving maniac. (laughs) Go to Mexico and see my latest implementation, my wonderful, wonderful Um, client at Crown in Queretaro and see this thing alive and see it, see it make sense, see it revolutionize, see it change all of the important parts that need to be changed and yet preserve the the important parts of us that need to be supported and preserved. Yeah? Visualworkplace.com radio at visualworkplace.com. You can reach me through that email as well. I'm so glad you came back. Last episode, last show, we were talking about chaos and fractals. I'm beginning a discussion of morphogenic fields, but I needed more time because I want to share this with you. And that's what we're going to focus on today after I do a summary for those of you who would like me to frame it again or maybe didn't join us last week. But we're going to add monkeys to the mix, over a hundred of them. <laughs> and please remember, this is part of my current series on visual leadership. So this is focused on the leader's view. It is um, conceptual but very, very relevant. I found it to be so. Visuality exists and serves splendidly in operations with a vast array of visual devices and systems. And we mentioned some of the well-known ones before, Andon and Kanban and visual pull systems and visual problem solving, but there's so much more. What we want is to develop a workforce that knows how to think visually and does it, a workforce of visual thinkers. And the 10-doorway model that I have referred to so often in my shows, I refer to here. Each of those 10 doorways, maybe not 10 doorway, sorry, doorway 10, which is an, doorway 10 is an amplification of of the model. Uh, it's a way of connecting up your factories if you have widespread factories, far-flung, geographically distant, and creating a common language. But the other doorways, common visual language, the other doorways work very specifically 
Each doorway is linked to a specific visual methodologies, methodology or an array of them that serves that organizational function. Doorway one is for operators. Doorway two is engineers, supervisors, managers. Doorway three is supervisors, planners, engineers, managers. Doorway four is executives and on and on. Doorway six, your pokey oak doorway, is in support of your quality function and is often uh, embraced by your quality group who then teach the methodology. So the organizational level function and the methodology or an array of methodologies, visual methodologies, are the way is the way the 10 doorway model works. It's great. It's a way of understanding how to let the workplace speak for each group. This is the way the enterprise learns to speak by translating its need to know, its need for information, and its need to share that information into a set of specific visual solutions through methodologies. In this way, visual thinkers give a voice to that. And we say we let the, the workplace speak. The voice is in terms of visual solutions. And the workplace does speak. And it becomes increasingly connected, fluid, self-aware, it becomes a conscious organization, a conscious enterprise. And there's more. So there are the devices, right? There's the visual thinking, which is to notice motion and the information deficits that trigger that motion, and then to eliminate both through solutions that are visual. There's that journey. It's very physical, very tangible, very exact, very fabulous, wonderful, splendid. <laughs> so say my clients. I had a, C, uh, a GM the other day. I nearly fell on my rear end because he hugged me. I said, I'd been working with him for a while. And I said, gee, I hope you like these changes. I so appreciate the opportunity to bring them to you. And he said, are you kidding I was so surprised because he's not a, a very demonstrative person. He said, are you kidding, Gwendolyn? You've completely transformed my organization. Of course I, I appreciate it. I thank you for it. I mean, it was just a moment that just shocked me. It was as though, anyway, I, I better not describe it because this person is real and he's alive right now. And I just want to say I was very, very appreciative, but I didn't know. I just kind of keep my head down and get my work done and see the changes and hope that the uh, folks that I'm working for and with really appreciate them uh, because, man, I see them. But there's more than just the devices to this journey. There's a conceptual underpinning, and that's what we're going to continue today. I want to continue describing some of these fundamental and in a sense, invisible concepts, concepts that I've learned over these years. I'm now moving into, for heaven's sakes, my fourth decade of implementation and growth in this model. And we talked about this the last time. And I want to summarize because I want to do a good job in connecting this in a practical way to your outcomes. We talked about morphogenic fields and fractals and chaos Today we're going to talk about monkeys. Actually, we talked about chaos theory last time and fractals. Today we're talking about morphogenic fields and monkeys. <laughs> Why? Because they have been part of the, uh, an important part of my understanding for me, and I want to share what I've learned with you. I want you to understand, appreciate, and kind of um, grok, if you're familiar with that old word, G-R-O-K, grok the breadth, the depth, the relevance, and sheer glory of this wonderful field called workplace visuality. What's on top is visible, practical, and tangible, these devices and the methodologies that get them to you. What's underneath is as important. The strains of force and change, the flow, the flows of power and incredible effectiveness. And that's why this discussion is part of our series on visual leadership, because you know what? 
You need to understand how organizations change. You may already, you may know what I know. Wonderful, let's have a conversation. Or this may be new to you, but it should also be strengthening. Strange how we assume we know how improvement happens. We have this simple kind of cause and effect formula. Stranger yet, I mentioned this last week, is how we seek to validate that progress in terms of exact technical causes and the undeniable logic of the physical or tangible change. But there is existing a different set, a second set of causes that are almost undetectable unless you know what to look for. And yet they produce tangible, knowable changes. So we need to switch between Underneath and on top, on top what we can see visibly and what is supporting it foundationally. It's not complex. It is there to be known. Just don't underestimate it. I want to encourage you on your journey, everyone. But in this series, especially folks who have positional power, who have titles, that are powerful titles like supervisor, manager, executive, GM, CEO, people who are empowered to execute and sustain the corporate intent. They are expected to be powerful and to use that power to advance the goals and the growth of the organization for whom they work. Please notice I'm saying this about supervisors So many supervisors are simply the glue that holds the organization together every single day. I'll say every stinking day because it's hard work and it's not done with great precision or support or clarity or training. We teach supervisors how to handle conflict and how to fill out their forms, but do we teach them to be powerful? Well, of course, you know, my methodology is I-driven. Whomever that I is, whoever, correct English is, whoever that I is, for for the I to be grounded in the power of the self, of the person, whatever that positional power is titled. So to be successful, whatever rung of the ladder you are, you need to have a fairly clear and Growingly complete understanding of how change happens and where your friends are. Friends, these forces that are engaged naturally as you proceed on the path of change and growth and transformation. Don't underestimate them. They are not just powerful friends. They are allies. You need them and they know it and they're ready to help. Okay? So I'm talking about your understanding that you can engage uh, a really a, a ready, a very ready organic level of change if you are aware that it exists. And last week we spoke of chaos and chaos theory, change, strange attractors, still points and fractals. We redescribed chaos last show, not as utter confusion and disorder turbulence and frenzied mix of elements, gaseous and uncontainable, but rather as a science, because in the early 20th century, 1920, 1930, there were a lot of discoveries being made, and a science evolved, an array of knowable, usable, relevant principles and experiments that could be defined and applied and repeated. They were causative. These scientists established a branch, it's called the chaos science or the science of chaos, founded on the hard realities of mathematics. They discovered this after decades of first dismissing chaos as knowable and then eventually discovering that in fact it is a system, that chaos is multiple elements with predictable, knowable rules of order and change. 
And one of the characteristics of the system, the science of chaos, of chaos itself, is that it is highly responsive to minute changes. A good example of that is weather and weather systems. But another example of that is your organization. It is highly responsive to minute changes. In weather systems, small changes in pressure and temperature can multiply and change the weather rapidly. It appears random, but that's only because you don't see the, the, the minute cause. It is not ran, random. I like to say it's causative, not random. Causative means it's been caused, and that cause is knowable. I mean, you've heard about weather, and I'm sure, I think you've heard about the butterfly effect. If you haven't, it will be well worth a read in Wikipedia. But it basically means that somewhere on uh, on the planet, some butterfly flaps its little wings and the weather changes in Japan <laughs> or Brazil or in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> But I'm saying the same thing happens in your organization. Don't underestimate your decisions because your decisions are still points. You know them as commitments, but your decisions about the direction of the company and your resolution that it will happen. The reason that chaos changes and becomes organized is because of a still point. This has now been validated, verified. It is part of the science now. A still point. The opposite of chaos is not order. Nope. It is the still point. The still point is the antidote. The still point, which I say is your decision, followed by your commitment to your decision, your validated uh, decision, which I will say to you, uh, I'm hoping to, uh, I don't know if I'll be teaching you or just confirming what you already know, but there are three powerful visual methodologies or tools for you to use on the leadership level that will create what comes out of that still point, that decision, and that creation is called pattern. Pattern. That's what's missing from organizations that are currently just the result of setting up a factory and starting making things, setting up a hospital and starting to help people, setting up an office and processing paper. What's missing is the pattern. Pattern comes out of chaos because of the still point. We know that pattern <laughs> in Terms that has a very particular name, the overriding pattern. It's called fractals. Fractals. It's a piece of science. It is a detailed pattern that repeats itself. It is the same if you're close up, minutely close up, microscopically close up, watching it at the end of a microscope, or if you are on the moon and you see the pattern, it will be a repetition of the pattern, but it will be large scale. So there is this reliability, repeatability in a fractal that that is there, corporate leaders and supervisors, to inspire you. We'll talk corporate leaders right now because you can make it happen and supervisors can benefit. This repeatability that we see in the culture of Toyota, that we see in the culture of the great companies in Dana, in the United States, Murata Industries, a long, long time ago, the culture that drives Magna Industries, Parker Hannafin. It is a feeling, but it is a feeling that is allowed to grow because the pattern is known, it is made, it is committed to, it is a decision, and it is repeatable. That is a very powerful force in your uh, search for sustainment. And I, I'd like, I invite you to look at 
fractals and chaos, science of chaos, to find your inspiration and to know you are naturally on the right track, that there is a payoff. What you are doing is important. Keep doing it. Stay committed. Make that decision. Go for the transformation, and then you got to hold on because your entire organization is reorganizing itself. It has found the still point in you. You hold the charge. You're the steward of that moment, of this change. Hold on. One of my favorite stories, which this experience I had, I went to, I was working with Rolls-Royce Aerospace. Um, oh, it was almost 20 years ago. It was just after 9-11, so almost 20 years ago. And they asked me to come in because I had made a, a talk in 1984 that somebody important sat in on. And they said, this is our problem. We don't have visuality. We heard you talk about it in Australia in 1984. Anyway, I went to this place. I went to aerospace, went to Derby. It's a part of Rolls-Royce. Wonderful people. So smart. And... There was some kind of revolution going on. They had done five or six years of McKenzie, and they were beginning to see all of the work that McKenzie had done was eroding and falling away, and they were so puzzled about it. But they were in the midst, and so we helped them. Of course I helped them. Of course I did. But what I found when I first got there was something that wasn't part of the discussion but was still stunning and stunning to our purposes today, which is they had been doing an engine by the way, they made the Merlin engines for World War II. They had been manufacturing an engine, and it took them six, seven months to make an engine. And one day, the top guy, he was a lord. <laughs> I like to say that because <laughs> I met him, I met him, and, you know, the lord said, one day the lord said, <laughs> sorry, his name escapes me, forgive me, please, lord. <laughs> but he said, he was just fed up. With all of the waste and all of the investment he had made, millions and millions and millions of dollars and, and, and hours and hope. And he said, I just wanted to stop and I am now going to declare that this engine that takes us months to make, I want it in 72 days. I don't know why he chose 72 days. No one I spoke to knew why he chose 72 days, but he said, I want it. And this is one of the things I say to the CEOs and also the supervisors and the plant managers that I'm working with. I say, please develop I want as an organizing uh, element in your leadership. I want. What is it that you want? We'll talk about this in terms of methods and tools in in a show, or maybe we already have. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to place this particular sequence that we're doing now in our uh, in our discussion. But, but, he said, I want a 72-day engine. And that's all he said. He never explained himself. He said, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. I want a 72-day engine. When I was at Rolls-Royce, they were at 90 days. They were at 90 days. And they were, that is, it had its own built-in measurement. I want a 72-day engine. He held on and everything changed because of it. He became the still point. He may not have called himself the still point, although he was extremely well-read and knowledgeable. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if he might have studied, read about the uh, chaos, the science of chaos, probably in James Gleck's book. Splendid, splendid book, The Science of Chaos. And he said, I'm going to be the still point. I'm going to manufacture the still point. It is going to be me, and I'm going to sing a single song, and I'm going to say it again and again and let other people worry about it because my job is to be the still point. I want a 72-day engine, 72-day engine, 72-day engine. Everybody talked about it. So you want to set up a new way, a new culture, contributing, empowered, spirited, and engaged, or as Ono said, people come to, people don't come to Toyota to work. They come to think, to think and contribute. Work is their platform for thinking. If that's what you want, 
which encompasses bottom line and cultural outcomes, where your workforce is self-directed and high-performing because they know what you want, therefore they know what they want. Well, theoretical physics supports that. It's built in. It's chaos theory. It's the science of chaos. You may have to make the first reach, but not far. You will be met. You will be met with the mechanics of the way things work. These mechanics will support your vision and your destination. You have friends in high places. (laughs) This isn't magic, right? It's not. It's actually very tangible. It's the origin of form, which brings me to morphogenic fields. I told you about Rupert Sheldrake. I'm just such a fan. I'm a groupie. I, I, I only met him once for five minutes, but I'll tell you, his work is so exciting. Read Seven Experiments That Could Change the World. He, he made a whole book out of one of his chapters called Dogs, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And he is, in his own way, attempting to make tangible natural forces that are unseen right now and to some extent unknown right now. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. Just because you can't see it, does love exist? You can't see it. But man, you can feel it and you can work it and you can use it. Right? These are forces. Love is a power. These mechanisms, mechanisms are powerful. And they are discernible. So let me move from this idea of morphogenic fields, which means the origins, that which begets form, that which begets the, uh, the physical. I want to make sure I have enough time to talk to you about the hundredth monkey. Because this is where it began for me like 25 years ago. This brought me later into Sheldrake and morphogenic fields and the science of chaos. It just strengthened what I was seeing and experiencing but not able to explain and not able to explain to the companies that came to me to explain it. Okay? So there is around... uh, Around species, according to the work, this is Watson, Lyle Watson. He wrote a book called Lifetide. He introduced us to, the, uh, to this idea of watching monkeys. And out of that came Ken Kesey's 100th monkey when he was trying to get people to pay attention to um, nuclear bombs as being something that needed to be kind of re- rethought, <laughs> And he said, come on, we can do this together. This whole kind of populist, popular movement of people banding together. Morphogenic fields. Okay. So, let me tell you the story of the hundredth monkey as he explained it. And then we'll back up and make some points about your company that I hope you'll find useful. So, there's this remote island off the coast of Japan called Koshima. And it was home to the macaque monkeys. M-A-C-A-Q-U-E is the way it's spelled in English. They lived there in the wild. And in the 1950s, they were the subject of intense research. And, and they had been so because they have very interesting eating and, and uh, social habits. And they were... Uh, easy to study for the anthropologists and the bio, bioanthropologists who, uh, who chose them as subjects. The, the, the group or the troop of um, researchers would go to the island, they'd sit there and they'd kind of just watch the behavior of the monkeys. But something happened it, the year was 1942 when a group of scientists who were researching the macaques' feeding behaviors, they set out stacks of raw sweet potatoes on the beaches of Cosima. It was an island. And they watched the monkeys. They were just watching, see, are they going to like sweet potatoes? But something unusual happened. 
The sweet potatoes were quickly covered with sand, presenting the monkeys with a dilemma. The dilemma was they wanted to eat these delicious treats. They would take a bite, but when they took a bite, they would also get sand and grit in their teeth, in their mouth. They didn't like it. And one day it was observed that an 18-month-old female monkey by the name of Emo, because, you know, when you hang out with, with, with animals a lot for like months and months and years, you kind of name them. You get to know the personality or the differences, and you, and you name them. And this particular monkey, 18 months old, was called Emo. Well, one day she carried a sand-covered sweet potato to a stream and washed it. She solved the problem by washing it off, washing the sand off before putting it into her mouth. That was astonishing. And that went all around the scientific community that these researchers hung out with and said, oh, my God, the monkey is demonstrating adaptive intelligence. She, is, she has ex- exerted or exhibited a new behavior of washing food off before putting it into her mouth in order to keep the sand out of her teeth. Oh, they were astonished. But then she did something that was even more amazing. She taught her mother this new procedure, and she taught her playmates. Oh, my gosh. So this monkey, Emo, is not just exhibiting adaptive intelligence, but she is sharing her adaptation with others. She's teaching. What? This is 1950s. You know, it's almost 100 years ago. I'm a little bit 20 years, 25 years short of 100 years ago. At the time, we didn't give animals very much slack to be smart. So the researchers were astonished. And because she taught others, the behavior began to spread because they taught others as well. And slowly over the next six years, in full view of the team of scientists who had set up the experiment, And without their interference, the monkeys on Cosima learned the procedure and taught it to others in the troop. Wash the sand off of the sweet potatoes or off of food in general. Before eating it, you'll have a more enjoyable experience. Well, reports of this occurrence reached the outside world with speed and created quite a stir in scientific circles. This wild monkey, now this troop of wild monkeys changing their relationship with physical reality through a new behavior. They had discovered on their own, teaching each other a new need, a new thought, a new behavior. And then she shared it. They learned it. Wow. In monkey terms, says Lyle Watson in this old book, 19, what was it, 1960, perhaps, Lifetide. He said this was a cultural revolution comparable to, well, the invention of the wheel in our terms. It was really, really big. But things were just heating up. Something really extraordinary, undesigned, unanticipated was about to happen. Something that no one had ever observed before. The exact details of of what I'm about to tell you are sketchy because, according to Watson, the scientific constructs of the time were not designed to describe them. The following was observed to have happened, and by the fall of 1958, something. This is when the shift happened. So, so many by the fall of 1958, many of the monkeys on Cosima had already adopted this new washing behavior. An exact number is not specified, but we will take, I will take my cue from Watson and set the number at 99. 99 monkeys were now washing the sand off of food before eating it. Then one more monkey began to do it. The hundredth monkey. And the inexplicable happened. The behavior jumped, didn't just jump to a neighbor, a buddy, a family member, member of the troop, the tribe of monkeys. Suddenly, and let us say for right now, mysteriously, the macaque monkeys on a nearby island began to do the same thing, to wash the sand off their food before eating it. The behavior jumped. It jumped to another island. 
Emo didn't pick up her cell phone and say, hey, we've, we're doing something really cool on this island. Why don't you try it on yours? The behavior jumped. We're talking monkeys here. The behavior jumped. This created such perplexity amongst the scientific community because it jumped on its own. It transferred on its own. And what we know is this. Morphogenic fields are fields, they're like a net around species. They're species-specific. They're special, not special, but special. It's spelled C-I-E-L, not C-I-A-L. They're special. And that, the growing understanding was, feeding into Sheldrake's work, that the behavior was becoming a part of the behavior of the species, the knowledge grid, the behavioral grid, the behavioral net of the species. And any member of that species could access it, could access the new behavior because the behavior was now part of the realized body of understanding that they understand. It's called macaque consciousness. Nearly 70 years have passed since that event. Now, what am I talking about now? It's nearly, well, you know, it's 70, 75, 80 years. And a great deal of research has been done on how and why this phenomenon happens, which is now actually called the 100th monkey principle. How and why behavior learning jumps and a keen focus for Rupert Sheldrake. It has cleared human applications as well. It explains how discoveries of all kind seem to happen nearly simultaneously in distant, unconnected parts of the world. You ask Nobel Prize winners and they're also RANs. Scientists and inventors are often accused of stealing the ideas of others, but that's rarely the case. There's no malign intent here. It is instead the grid of thought that connects them and us intimately with each other. This is the science of noetics, the science of mind. We are intimately connected with each other all the time, anytime. And in the case of the monkeys and the case of us, a critical mass gets reached and the knowledge becomes a part of the collective. I can tell you In my experience, this is what I see happening in companies, this hundredth monkey phenomenon. It kind of lives in the world of the new physics, the new science, but this is a science. It is being studied and known now, but this is what I see in companies. You get a best practice. You put it into the knowledge grid of your company. And you keep practicing it, you keep doing it, you stay focused, you are the still point, you hold on, 72-day engine, 72-day engine, I'm going to hold on to this sucker, and it's going to pay off, because I really mean it, and I want it. I'm the CEO, I'm the GM, I want it. I want it with my full heart, I'm paying attention, I'm not casual about it, I'm putting my energy into it, my belief into it. I'm walking the talk and talking the walk and doing all of that because I want it. And it is accessed through me, but it is spread or populated through everyone else who's doing it. Everyone else. Hmm? You can rely on this. Can catastrophic things happen Nevertheless, yes, of course, you can get knocked off the game, your game. It can happen, of course. But I'm talking about what is possible when you have some modicum of control on the causative level. Visuality is slowly becoming a practice now. It's seen by some folks even as a best practice. They mistakenly call it visual management and they they confine its scope, but it's beginning. It's in the knowledge grid now, ready and available to be harnessed. It can be accessed 
today in a much more powerful form than the words that I'm saying now imply because it is already powered by all the thought form, all the thought and behavior that preceded it, that preceded this show, this very show. The pool of understanding is widening even as I speak it. You are adding to that knowledge net simply by considering the possibility. Even if you end up not agreeing with the premise that I'm presenting today, in the world of manufacturing improvement, the breakthrough methodology you and your company adopted to win the race yesterday barely qualifies you to be in the, quali- the playing field now because of this rapid expansion of workability and worthiness and additional expansion, this growth in growth. So the behavior that I call visuality is a thought form that is gaining in use. It's a powerful thought form, too. It really, 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 really works. It is a, indeed a crucial component of operational excellence. And I, I pretty much know that you know that, even now. But even now, not that many companies are embracing it. In five years, that will have shifted. In 10 years, people will chuckle at the backwardness of these times. And you can make that sentence work for you on anything that you're talking about. I remember when I first wrote about this, it was my first book, 1996-97, Visual Systems, which is currently out of print, but we're getting it back probably in the next six months. This is where the story first appeared. People were running up and down the street in their shorts They were running, using the street as a running track. That was back in the mid-1990s. Now, why didn't we do that sooner? Why didn't people just run and exercise and be able to take it with them everywhere? The behavior has jumped. The visual workplace is jumping now. It will be considered fundamental and required just the way Kaizen is today or Lean is today. The visual workplace is not the wave of the future. It is the wave of now. It's catching on. So, but don't let the monkey connection offend you. Don't let this offend you. But Emo and her species demonstrated to us the power of directing our attention and the power of thought to shape and move and transform when she was a little monkey there in 1952-1958, she figured out something. She made a connection. She had a lot of help in the mechanics of the way consciousness works. She reached a solution. And a new nodal point was inserted in the special field of the macaque monkeys. A new nodal point. Think of it as a net and think of the nodal point to be one of those knots that holds the strings of a net together. Look for parallels. Think about this. An engineer is tired of hearing complaints about her design, that it's not manufacturable, and she decides to find a new way to structure a product's architecture. And she succeeds Beyond anyone's wildest dreams, a shop floor associate is tired of bothering to searching and waiting with searching and waiting and deciding, and he invents a visual solution to those senseless activities. He cracks the code. The idea spreads, turns into a visual best practice. The net thickens, acquiring new nodal points because more and more people have decided to contribute, to think, to contribute, to engage to contribute their excellence, to contribute their stillness. This new thinking gets structured into the consciousness net of your company. Changing the consciousness of your company can never happen through sheer dint of effort, as legions of exhausted, disappointed change agents can attest. It happens when we tied into the deep force within us that is the source of all positive change in combination with us. This force works to inspire, transfer, and translate the new thought. The kind of changes that take place as you implement. The principles and practices. This is what you want to have happen. This is what is meant to happen. Yes, something extraordinary happened that revealed the way. And I want to say to you, (laughs) 
<laughs> somewhere <laughs> on the beach of some island, a monkey is washing off a sweet potato. Here it comes. <laughs> this is your happiness on its way to you. Hmm? I want you to please think about these things. They're important. And they're real. When you do your own work with full spirit, you layer in new thought forms into the knowledge and behavioral grid that surrounds you as the GM, you as the plant manager, and your company. Change is a behavioral model. It is a behavioral model. And as you do that, you are demonstrating and you're building the grid. We are all connected. You know that. You've known that for a very long time, and so have I. And now it's time to harness the power of that knowledge and let its benefits spread. What you are doing is important. Keep doing it, but do it with a more complete understanding. It is time to harness that power of the visual workplace, of excellence, of improvement. Keep going. You can't stop anyway. Any more than a scientist working on a subatomic particle research in Germany can keep new thoughts, thought forms, new thoughts from jumping into, his, into the mind of another scientist doing similar work in New Zealand or in Zimbabwe or in Brazil or in Cleveland, Ohio. You can't stop it. Somewhere out there, a monkey is washing off a sandy sweet potato, and it's about to change your life. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I want to wish you such a rewarding and satisfying journey to your destination. Hopefully, visuality is part of that, part of your thinking, and great success to you as a visual thinker. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.